that's actually I started to feel like I'm in some kind of Siberian, you know. Uh, what do you call it? You know, because in Russia, when you're, <laughs> yeah, or God, what do you, yeah, exile basically when mm-hmm. they send you there. But it's not Siberian. Mine is like tropical. Yours is more Siberian. You're more mine is like, more east north. <laughs> yeah. Up through April, it was definitely. But now it looks like it's just rain, not snow. Anyway, so yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Um, but wh- why is, why was the week hard for you? I don't even know. That's what's so strange. That's why I was saying to Philippe, but maybe what's it's actually getting to. I just feel like, I don't know, everything. I couldn't get myself to get stuff done. I just seemed like my mm-hmm. whole schedule was crap and my mood was crap and I slept badly and just everything. All the problems I hadn't been having, I suddenly <laughs> was having. I was weird. Yeah, I kind of, yeah. yeah, I start to sort of like <laughs> feeling weird and yeah. kind of hard to fight off the insanity, mostly insanity. But you know, I, I, I mean, I gave up and joined the basically insane circle of um, uh, people exercising through Zoom classes. Oh, really? Oh, wow! By, <laughs> you know, because there's something to that. At uh-huh. least it's like live. Yeah, and there's a real person on your screen, some kind of woman yelling at you. Right, right, and uh, and sort of. <laughs> Sometimes she gets really close to the camera to look at the all the you know people working out with you. So I don't know. There's something. It's like communal. I don't know if you ever tried the, the Zoom no, activities. No, I'm about to because my <laughs> friend of mine is doing Zoom yoga. Okay, that's so it. I was going to try to do Zoom yoga. Yeah. Yeah, but basically that's the same thing. Yeah, do Zoom yoga. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, at least it gets you kind of in the. Uh, you know, in the world social. a little more. Yeah, yeah. It's also kind of weirdly social. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, but it, it is it is really really bizarre. It just is like a, some kind of weird um, I don't know, somewhat dull, but like dumb, but kind of a horror movie. So you expect because you see all the screens on your screen because it's divided into right. other people joining, but it yeah. sort of feels I don't know. I can imagine if something just pops up on the screen and like drags one person away. I don't know. Or I or I, <laughs> at least I've seen movies like that. Right. <laughs> and now when it's like full reality of just being on the screen, it's just yeah, it's kind of desperate. But yeah, but basically <laughs> that's what I'm doing now. And it sort of helps to at least, you know, move around more. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's becoming a real thing. I've got to do something. I, some, I don't know if I thought I was going to wait this out or what, but it's uh-huh. starting to take its toll in a big way. Yeah. Yeah, because what is what with the bone density? I'm not even talking about this some kind of aesthetics. Like the, I, I'm scared that the bone density would go, will go down because I think if you, if you don't, <laughs> I don't no, think you're in any danger. You're in yeah, excellent, you excellent shape. <laughs> so now uh, I like. Worry I wouldn't about have that. any bones at all if that were really the case. <laughs> density yeah well yeah man so um did you did you manage to sort of finish the i did uh, i I finished it seems so long especially because he completely runs out of gas at the end yeah very kind of repetitious what's the word sort of like in circles it's like i wondered while reading it honestly like did he have good editors i thought it was the same thing like did There's did no one dare there. tell him like you're you're saying the same things over and over yeah. or and that toward the end all the energy is just gone yeah. you're just I racing through like, your films yeah. and mentioning them and mentioning a performance and saying it was great and going on to the know, next one. I know. And, it's like what a talented actress. What a talented, yes. beautiful woman. Talented and beautiful. Funny, smart, talented and beautiful. I'm like, what? Yes. Are you convincing? I know. It becomes also, so generic by the end. You're just like, yeah. oh man. But but honestly. 
say, I, I mean, that's one of my topics, but like, isn't it an offset of, I wouldn't say early because he's pretty old, like some sort of like beginning of senility because he's sort of like positive and kind of, I mean, fairly lucid, but there's something like too upbeat about this, like generic characterizations and like repetition you know, repetition of just the same narrative over and over again yeah, from chapter well, and, to chapter. And there's also that tendency that you see in people who are really getting getting older, where their liveliness really comes through when they're talking about their youth. So the best mm-hmm. part for me was the early, all the early stuff. He seems really sure. funny and lively still, and I was the most interested in the in you know his early early life, early career. Um, that stuff was all lively, and he was still and much funny. More detailed, and much right? more detailed. He actually exactly. remembers it well. Yeah, he remembers it really well, <sighs> and that's so typical of people who are really getting older. Their their youths come come alive in their minds. <laughs> it's yeah. an memory trick. Yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah, yeah. So but, um, it, it was a tough slog by the end. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what? I I know we've like uh, decided to devote the entire obviously episode mm. to the, this uh, apropos of nothing thing and just Alan's <laughs> career. But mm-hmm. I, I I kept thinking while um, uh, reading that I turned then to Barry Zonnefeld memoir you recommended, yeah, yeah. and I mean it's hard not to compare. I mean they're different mm-hmm. age group and all that, but his is so much more just alive and full of kind of. I don't know. Joie de vivre, what do you say? I, I agree. I kept mentally comparing too. Well, and I kept thinking mm-hmm. they have such opposite approaches to their family life. Mm-hmm. Sonnenfeld just goes for it 100%. I mean, he just goes after his parents <laughs> like <But> so <laughs> hugely. And then, of course, reverses it only in the last chapter when he shows you what the rest of the world thinks of his parents, which is they, they love them. Yeah. They're wonderful. Yeah. Um, but but it looks like Alan won't go there other than a few a few insulting remarks. But then otherwise, it's all about how actually I was much more healthy and normal and I should have turned out fine, you know, because I had a good childhood. You know, he doesn't want he's just like he doesn't want to go there. You know, he makes the insulting com- comparison of his mother's looks to what Groucho Marx and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And some other actor. Uh, and even uh, like Ebert, I think even Roger Ebert. Oh, maybe. Men. Like, <laughs> no, no, that was Sonnenfeld did that. Oh, yeah. Oh, Sonnenfeld has a photo. That's right. That's right. Saying, that's right. Clearly channeling Roger yes. Ebert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, vision. No, it's Alan's mother is Grouch Marx. Groucho Marx. And, yeah. and he, but he's just very sketchy about it. I was surprised. I thought, you know, I really would have liked a couple of chapters just on his family, you know, just thinking of Sonnenfeld and how he just gets the rich, often appalling details down so well. And yeah, he really skims over that and kind of just goes to his career, you know, yeah. his you career know, just One thing though, because obviously these very Sonnenfeld's parents have dad and mm-hmm. whenever he really went out and it's really funny and sort of like pretty short and to the point. Mm-hmm. But I do have to say like, I mean, overall, you kind of come out of it thinking also, because he quotes his parents, mm-hmm. uh, thinking that I mean they were not they were not so bad. They told him all the right things. It just really pops at you in the like first two like chapters immediately that I've got either mom or dad or both telling him that uh, you better find something you like doing and figure out how mm-hmm. to make money off of it or be an artist, be this, be that. I don't know. Go to film school. Mm-hmm. And sure, they like <laughs> probably horrible as he described horrible kind of daily day-to-day yes day-to-day living cohabitants <laughs> but overall they were it, it's actually an extremely good advice <laughs> i mean it's not holding you down in any way you know? oh yeah absolutely so and he yeah. did that so in a way yeah. i don't know it's like 
kind of hate. I mean, and I know the last chapter he admits they're like whatever other people thought they're great, but overall, it's like how much trauma could they really do if you actually did exactly what they sort of, you know, advised. You know, as as whatever any advice parents. Well, can I don't give. know. He he goes. He just goes yeah. to town on his mother. <laughs> he yeah, talks about repeatedly about her how bad her breath smell. I mean, he just he I just no, but it's, isn't it wow. bizarre? I know. <laughs> I think he Techno. found living the way they lived so personally disgusting and traumatizing that, you know, he does represent like that's where it comes from. His own, his own, neuro- but he's the most, you're right in that he's the most high functioning neurotic. Yeah. Ever, ever. You know, successful. Nothing talented. but success comes out of these neuroses. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So I don't know, but that's like, I mean, whereas whatever, Woody Allen how- winds up. Which you'd never guess from his films, the way he mm-hmm. tends to portray kind of the childhoods of his, like an Annie Hall of his, of his, you know, alter egos, is that he, it was, everything was fine, essentially. I mean, his parents always argued, he, he makes some joke about how they, you know, they, they disagree on anything except Hitler and something else. It's, it's, it's a one-liner. And so there's always arguing, but otherwise everything is perfectly wholesome. And you're kind of, and so, so he makes his own neuroses, which are of course famous and he just, you know, dined out on for years are a mystery. Like how did he ever get <laughs> so phobic? And he just was like, well, I don't know. Yeah. It's not, it's not clear. It's not very revealing in that way at all, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. In fact, he's really well, insistent on, I actually was a really good athlete and I actually was, you know, it kind of suggests he was very active and involved and popular and had lots of friends and, and all that stuff. I know, but I think, yeah, well, he addresses that. He does say that really nothing, you know, it's almost like he should have been the most he normal. He should have been well, lawyer, well adjusted, lawyer. normal. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, basically, And somehow type. it didn't work out that way. And he, well, he, he attributes it to his existential kind of outlook that he's somehow born with, that we're in a violent, senseless world and we're, we've all got to die. And <laughs> Yeah, know, which he, is not he makes wrong. it seem. <laughs> and he's not he's wrong, not but that he's preoccupied he's by. Wrong. To an extraordinary degree, as he yeah, himself says. Yeah, and also says. like it's all yeah, and it kind of, but it's all kind of somehow weirdly done through like navel gazing, right? It's all mm-hmm. goes like small. All his preoccupation with the meaningless of the world. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, I don't know how. In the end, he kind of again, it's such a long book. You come out, you know, thinking that it could have been twice as short. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and it's true that he doesn't necessarily have that much to say, which he sometimes like self-deprecatingly jokes in the mm. course of the book, right? Right. Remember, he constantly goes, oh, schlimmel, I think it's a Middish word. How could I, whatever, I'm empty, shallow, people will discover that I have nothing to say. Yes. Why are they giving me all these awards, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, well, <laughs> make the book fucking shorter. Because <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I, I always thought, is there going to be something more interesting? I kept reading and reading, and yeah, not really. But you know, okay, I think obviously one of the central bo- things, just because of the how controversial times mm-hmm. for the book to come out, was like the the whole Mia scandal. But I think before getting into that, because you even remember somewhat mm-hmm. like when it the first wave of that hit yeah. in the early nineties. But I guess I just want to kind of don't start with that. Let's like, just. No, no, let's do not. the movies. Talk the other stuff. That, yeah. I don't think of him as like, that's the defining, the most defining thing, even though, I mean, it sort of turned out to be for, I guess, a layman. But yeah, so about the whole early funny films, which he, even himself, like I think in later films, kind of refers to this whole critic thing 
crit mm-hmm. critics liking only early funny movies, not mm-hmm. the later Bergmanesque movies and all that. So do you have a, a particular kind of position on that? Because you, you're the one who also like early funny ones. Oh, I've always been. I, I loved his certain early movies. Take the Money and Run is great. <laughs> love and Death, I think, is just beyond great. I love, totally love that I love movie. Them. I like Sleep. He's really, he's really down on Sleeper. He has nothing good to say about Sleeper. He thinks it's a failed film. I, I remember thinking it was delightful. He used to run on TV all the time. Um, I loved his funny. I thought he was, he was such a great channel for older forms of comedy in America. You know, he falls in love with vaudeville, the, you know, the last fumes of vaudeville, you know, that are playing, you know, it, certain theaters only between movie showings and stuff. And he starts obsessively watching that. He's a huge fan of Bob Hope and Groucho Marx. So he's got all these lines of comedy that you can actually sometimes recognize if you watch Love and Death and you and you know Bob Hope mm-hmm. and Groucho Marx. He's literally deliver, using their deliveries in different scenes. He's There'll be a Bob you Hope mean the scene. Style, just, yes. okay. In the cadence, the, their line delivery styles. He's doing Groucho and he's doing Bob Hope. So for me, that's all really interesting. I, I that era interests me, you know, just in general. Um, and he has really, it's just, it's just a kind of fascinating insight into the way comedy is changing. It's really changing very strongly. And of course, the 50s, 60s, 70s, it's coming out of what's left of the vaudeville tradition. And you know, he talks about Mort, Mort Saul and worshiping Mort Saul. It gets into political humor, you know, and and fi- sort of finding him his place in a really rapidly shifting scenario, and with such success. I mean, he does at least talk humbly about how lucky he was, and he, it's eerie how lucky he is. <laughs> I mean, this guy's a top comedy writer by the time he's twenty two. He's just he yeah. just his leaps and bounds success is just insane, considering the flux that he's in. Like everything's changing, all the mores are changing as he goes, but he's always right there. And he has a great commentary that that I really did love. It was one of my favorite ones where he talks about the the, the kind of weird secret of all his success is that, at, you know, he's white hot. He's ultra famous. Other stars want to meet him. He's on every talk show. And he says, but the weird secret was I wasn't even that popular. <laughs> he's like, he felt sorry for nightclub owners who would book him because they're thinking they're going to be lines around the block. And he tells that anecdote <laughs> of saying how they have to keep night after night bringing in more potted plants to yeah. fill, to make it, the room look full because fewer and fewer people are coming. And by the end, he says, I'm deliver- I'm doing my whole act of foil- foliage. And he says the same thing with his albums, his comedy albums, when everyone is having huge success, Bob Newhart and you know uh, Bill Cosby and everyone's doing them and making huge sales. His die. He does repeated albums that get really well reviewed. You know, he's always really well reviewed. So he's just like that was just one of these weirdnesses that everyone assumed I must be as popular as I was famous, and I actually whenever I wasn't. And then he just makes the leap to movie. He's all and there's always somebody. He's, it's either an agent or a producer, somebody who's just standing there deciding he's the greatest thing since sliced bread and insisting on helping him. <laughs> You know, with their last dollar and their last drop of blood, and you're just like, who has this happen? It just over and over. Um, of What's course, and obviously to that. Yeah, I just well, obviously I, he he's got talent, no question. Yeah. And he was also, no, admittedly, like an insane workaholic. I mean, he just developed. He looks very, very high energy, like high strung. Yes, he's very yeah. he's very kind of wired in his delivery, mm-hmm. and his one liners were just just aces. And of course, that's that's his first foray into show business. That was when you could send. He's a teenager, and they start telling him, "You're so funny. You should send in some of your lines." You know, to, to like columnists, you know, kind of Walter Winchell-esque people, but there were lots of them, like Ed Sullivan and all these people who had columns, and they'd and they'd run funny lines, and and pretty soon, 
his lines were in every column. So he's a teenager, <laughs> you know? So of course he's got amazing comedic talent that, that you can't, but he also marries that to just this unbelievable work ethic. And in fact, he talks about that later, how JFK is assassinated. He hears about it from a maid in a hotel where he's writing. He goes, turns on the TV, watches the initial coverage for half an hour, absorbs the information as he says, turns it off, goes right back. He said nothing that stopped him. He got up and he wrote from Mafia, what, nine to six, regardless of what was happening. I think he says <laughs> and, he still does that. Which and is, he still does that. He just works. Yeah. He writes every day. And so that kind of iron constitution work ethic is married to talent is going to get you a long way. We just all have to admit it. Who, who could have never been able to achieve that kind of work ethic? <laughs> we need to be honest with ourselves. <laughs> Putting in that kind of work over many years is going to be be make a big difference between the scintillating talent that goes nowhere and the one that actually has a huge career. But but even at that, he was a lucky bastard. Yeah, I guess it's weird. Well, it, 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 I, but he is also like one of those like gener- he's of the generation of Jews, mm-hmm. along with um, he admits that too. Um, God, what's his name? Philip Roth, mm-hmm. who sort of like became kind of all of a sudden big in the. Right. American kind of culture as this kind of, I guess, Jewish Americans, funny or not, doesn't matter. But there was a certain a voice that suddenly allowed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. To be so it's prominent. also a generational thing, which doesn't demean his talent in any way. Mm-hmm. But there, there was something of that kind. And now, obviously, other generations of this type of, kind of Jewish writers or comedians followed, but they were the first. So mm-hmm. he's among the first. So it's sort of like almost, I don't know, it has like a bigger bigger influence i guess mm-hmm. yeah but you know it, it is bizarre because like um you know i i first watched uh doesn't matter when i i think i didn't differentiate that's how <laughs> dumb i was between early funny or later movies but i just watched a bunch of his movies when i mm-hmm. um, was a kid living in moscow and i really thought that generally new york is is basically woody allen movies yeah <laughs> and, and in a way part of it is so he's almost like some sort of historian of the manhattan media elite mm-hmm. to some degree right i don't know oh, absolutely it i mean to the that point way. that for a long time he wouldn't go anywhere i mean he would insist on everything he had to shoot in new york he didn't care what it added to the budget you know yeah. he just didn't want to be anywhere but but new york of course that's changed in more recent years we started filming in all these european cities because they would fund him after the scandal um but for a long time he was just absolutely it had to be in new york yeah yeah but so so my point is it's also besides whatever his basically comedic talent and genius like the what his movies did for me i think they still do i was just the other day just for the for the podcast i rewatched like half of any hall it really captures um and those people are still there or their children or whatever this kind of like manhattan smug media slash art people and he actually makes one of them so brutally mm-hmm. from t- sometimes because uh, you know it's well, in the, the book same time, ironically, he's really his description of the way yeah. he lives is that world it's absolutely yeah, that world <laughs> that is true but then he keeps insisting in the book which I mean you sort of believe it I I, I, I get that that he's not an intellectual in a way people oh, think oh no I he totally is. totally that, that I think one of the most interesting besides like the cool stories about the childhood and all that mm-hmm. one of the interesting kind of themes of you know 
his book and then thinking that it's yeah the way i guess it applies to his movies too because he does say that pretty early on i guess as a teenager starting you know his career as a whatever a one line writer he figured out that he, he can really do well the kind of references mm-hmm. right and work them in into his whatever that is short jokes a text and he would come off basically as a person who knows much more than he really really did Mm -hmm. and well that's obviously a skill but I agree that's like what he's saying he's basically tricking people into whatever perceiving him as an intellectual even though he's really sad he doesn't care he likes sports and watching baseball and and i don't know yeah that's my favorite stuff again the most endearing Mm -hmm. stuff about him when he writes about himself as a young man is that's what he cares about (laughs) he's wild about sports he's wild about you know pop music of course he gets into jazz but he acknowledges Mm -hmm. he's a terrible clarinetist even though he's always allowed (laughs) you know to have a band and to play and everything but he's awful um you know he movies you know, all that stuff is what he really loves. He didn't care anything about literature. He didn't care anything yeah. about philosophy. You know, he, he learns a smattering of philosophy from his second wife, Louise Lasser, who's going to Hunter College. Your no, no, mother. that's the first wife. Oh, oh no, Louise you're right. It is. It's, first what's wife. her face? What's her name again? Uh, ha- oh, you uh, see, Har- she's, not, she's not the famous wife. She's Arlene. not famous. First wife. You're right. She was going to Hunter College. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And they As a philosophy nearby. major. And that's where he first learns a little bit of it. But he has no de- had no dedication to that. And then he says, but, you know, I wore these little round glasses. <laughs> and that was sort of intense and he makes a joke about why he got you know plus that ability you're right to to read something quickly a massive stuff or experience yeah. something quickly and then just absorb and be able to comment as if he knew a lot more True. but you know he's leaving out things it's like he's done a revisionist history of himself he's leaving out for how many years he mm-hmm. and this is where i start parting company with Woody Allen because it seems to me he expressed a lot of contempt in interviews for his own you know, life as a com- as a comedian, as a comic mm-hmm. artist, as someone who makes films that are comedies, and he would just disparage them and just say that's not that's nothing. That you know, the people who are the real filmmakers, and he was a, just a worshiper of obviously Bergman, Bergman and Fellini yeah. is to, top two, but you know, in general, loving all of the art house stuff that's being made in the '60s, you know, especially, and he's just. He, beco- he becomes wild about that. If you ever see his published top 10 list of films, it's just right out of the most rote playbook of what were considered the greatest movies of the 60s to early 70s. And they're all on his list, you know. And so he then he was like, my whole aspiration is to make these kind of films now. I don't want to yeah. I don't want to be a mere comedian that's nothing or a a mere director of comedies that's nothing and i'd always be like are you fucking insane man (laughs) you're a unique comic genius even and you're disparaging it so you can be a second or fifth rate or whatever it is bergman or i was just like i could never get over it i could never get past it we we kind of covered the bridge but like that's frequently happens with comedic not only talents geniuses oh it's a syndrome uh, for sure that's like a thing once you hit i don't know what 40 or earlier mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was but it was one of the more interesting aspects of the of the memoir is that he it's like he's he went past it and he said now he looks back and he's like oh in this film i was trying to be bergman or i was trying to be anton chekhov or i was trying to be mm-hmm. tennessee williams turns out he's a huge he's very aware yeah yeah i never knew he was a huge tennessee williams fan and i can't remember mm-hmm. the movie now that he made that was inspired by tennessee williams but he's no like, one cares i think exactly no one knew and no because one cares. in every case he said i look at it now and i'm like nah nah it didn't come off it's not very good yeah. i'm not what i was trying to be and there was no real point 
trying to do that but but he does still say there's like a funny i think line that's something like he's a dramat or felt or feels like a dramatist or tra- tra- tradition basically stuck in the body of a comedian mm-hmm. so he, he's very aware of his own talents and skills and what whatever right what god or whatever gave him but he's just unsatisfied which is like a very i mean human thing whatever you have you're unsatisfied with or right it's much more endearing now than when he would give fairly pompous interviews (laughs) you know when he was in the thick of it it wasn't very Mm -hmm. appealing then because he was so like raging against comedy and just just dismissing Mm -hmm. yeah and just so enamored Mm -hmm. of these these other filmmakers to the point of just like God, it's like you forgot yourself entirely. Like you really yeah. forgot everything you loved and cared about that also was great and mattered, you know? But you know, know, I just kind of not defending. I mean, it doesn't need any defense, but um, I have to say, I don't know. I Some of the, I guess, so-called his serious movies, I think were pretty damn good. I don't know. Did you, do you hate or did you, did you like hate them all do you think they're all like some sort of subpar Bergman-esque things because you know even Stardust Memories even though obviously it sort of imitates eight and a half mm-hmm. of Fellini is parts of it are really I think really kind of good I don't know it ho- sort of holds up part of Annie Hall somewhat holds up uh what else crimes oh, no, well, and Annie Hall is to me the pivot point it's still very funny okay and mm-hmm. I can still like a lot of, of Annie Hall, but I, I begin to part company with him there because okay. it's, it's like there's something – maybe I was reading too many of his, his – he'd do, he'd do interviews periodically and I, mm-hmm. maybe I read too many of them. But, but it was a little weird that he was both in it – he was in it up to his neck but never of it. And at that point – and he'd always been able to pull that off. He was, he was never – he was always the comic outsider <laughs> out of any – you know, that's the very Groucho Marx, the Marx Brothers thing. You're never you, – even if you crash – Whatever it is, the 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 opera, the the academy, whatever highfalutin place you crash, you're the outsider, and you bring all that energy with you. And he starts off, and he, that's what he is. But by the time he gets to Annie Hall, he's still super funny, he's still super inventive. But you're seeing the move. It just there's something in the tone that shifts over to oh, now you're in it. Now you're an insider. Yeah, and it just meaning like too successful to be too like, successful. Kinda like, too many million meals, okay. Lady Lanes. Too many much <laughs> rubbing elbows with too many too many flattering uh, encounters with hotshot that he likes to quote from people all telling him he's a genius. Yeah. All that stuff starts to rub off, I think. I see what you mean. It's almost like there's, even though he tries to look sort of insignificant or, but you can but see, you first feel like of all, he doesn't believe any, it anymore. Yeah, but in any <laughs> hollows, he kind of, he's actually very fit. There's some almost like kind of some glamour to him in a weird way, yeah. which I guess that's what you mean, which is hard to hide because it comes with years of success. It's mm-hmm. like, it's not that even you're trying to tan or I don't know what, smother some expensive creams into your skin, but it's something. <laughs> something else like i don't i don't yeah. say that's that but yeah it's something else because you can see it on today when when it happens to a person someone becoming yeah, no, you can see the turning <laughs> yeah. the turn interest it's yeah. interesting that you see it in any hall now thinking about it, because like really just two days ago i went like i made it through half of any hall mm-hmm. he kinda, yeah he looks like some kind of i don't know what he <laughs> actually just realized that he looked like um when watching that he looks like a bit like a goat he looks kind of like <laughs> yeah. thin and strong, but, but that's like at the point, small. yeah, where he's considered his most attractive in an offbeat way. Yeah, 
<laughs> and you'd get people saying, I knew people, because I knew people who were huge fans of his. Really? And they'd just be like, I find him so sexy. And I'd be like, oh, come on. And they'd be like, no, really. But in that movie, you can see he's trying, you know, that in Manhattan. He's, I think in Manhattan, yeah. there's a scene where he's he's with his son, stepson. And he's, you know, he's, he's you know, dribbling a basketball down the street. They're going to go shoot hoops. And he's like trying to show like, you know, who. As he says in the memoir, I was really quite the athlete, and he keeps bragging yeah. about all of his athletic gifts. Um, you know, you've all got me wrong. I was I was not the little nebbish schnook intellectual nerd that I always played. Um, yeah, so those two movies, for, you know, there's stuff in Manhattan I can still laugh at, but Manhattan is mm-hmm. a maddening film. Um, it's really maddening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really starting to turn there. It's it's super highfalutin. <laughs> it's you know the ro- the romance of of the, the of the city has become super precious yeah. instead of it being kind of incidental. Here we are in New York in this kind of live wire way. Now it's you know dreamy romantic shots under the bridge with you know the couple on the park bench and the full moon. It's just starting to get a little a little twee. I was surprised that he he actually didn't didn't approve of it himself he said well you know eh, some of it came off but he, he thought it was was evaluated more highly than it should have been i guess mm-hmm. in hindsight which kind of surprised me because it was always considered such a masterpiece in my day hmm. yeah i don't know it's still got funny it's still got funny it's still funny but the same mm-hmm. it's it's just getting a little it's just getting awfully high tone. <laughs> awfully, awfully, awfully high tone. I don't know. It's kind of, I, I, I see what you mean because like thinking if, let's say, yeah, if um, Annie Hall kind of peak of his form and he's kind of turning mm. to sort of this <laughs> vampire. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what Hollywood Becoming vampire. Becoming one of them. <laughs> one of them. Uh, but it's still, still sort of like it's still working and it's still organic. That's what I was thinking because like even if it's the turning point, it makes sense because you, you look at it, um, like yeah, Annie Hall, him and Annie yeah. Hall, and he's still very like that. That's I guess that's why he became so successful. He has this organic quality about him. He knows exactly what he is, or he mm-hmm. knew at least in the, in his funny face. He knows how to. I don't know what's funny about him or body, his face, and how to use it, and his right. mannerism all organic, and it it fits. Um, for him to be kind of neurotic uh, person absolutely. stuck in Manhattan or yeah. pretending to be He's stuck in Manhattan. He's owned his persona, so all, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but it's sort of really, there is still, I can't find another word because it's only, it's very mm-hmm. organic. So it's sort of, I don't know, it's it's really, <laughs> it's really appealing still, I think. But yeah, I think, because yeah, Manhattan was a few years later, right? Mm-hmm. Or more than right. a few. Yeah, I guess that is where it's really kind of stops being all... And then after that, I really started to have a a hard time. (laughs) Even though I would continue to watch, you know, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Husbands Mm -hmm. and Wives, and Hannah and Her Sisters. But the more people raved, and this is when Critical Commentary, which had always been pretty good for him, uh, astonishingly good, really, just takes off. And that's where you get into the phase where any actor would crawl over broken glass to work for Woody Allen for nothing. And he never got a bad review, it seemed like, for an, an interval, mm-hmm. even for his, you know, obviously most appalling experiments. He was just, he couldn't have gotten more revered. It was, re- and maybe that was part of what affected me. I was surrounded by people who worshipped him, you know, in, in, you know, I was in college and it was just like, ah, and I just, you know, often secretly, I didn't even want to say how much I liked it less and less. I dutifully trooped off. I watched the movies and I'd just be like, oh, I'm caring less and less about this all the time. <laughs> 
but everyone else loved it more and more. Like I can still remember the the, the hoopla over Hannah and her sisters. It was just the mm-hmm. greatest movie that had fucking ever been made, and I was just like, nah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But but another thing, I mean, really making a movie a year for over fifty years. Yeah, to I more mean, than that. Can, fall, yeah, spring, some... fall, spring, fall, spring, fall, spring. Yeah. yeah. How, how then, you know, just impossible to deliver. Well, and it's interesting, you kind of don't know how much to believe him, but he, he keeps insisting, insisting in the memoir on how it's almost like he's just, it's almost like what you hear about Clint Eastwood films where, where he's just not that interested. You know, he wants, he, he was notorious for only he would shoot, he quit at five. You know, there was none of this, mm-hmm. you know, 12 hour, none of that or all nighters or anything. No, it was all this very regulated, very easy. You know, he didn't, he, there was no stress and strain. People weren't, people weren't flipping out on the set. There was no drama on a Woody Allen set. And he always made it seem like it's relatively easy you know, doing the doing his films the way he wants, and he always had total creative control and insisted on it and all the rest of it. And like clockwork, it was like he could really make two, two a year, absolutely reliably, no pro, and no sweat. But he really insists on. I never wanted to go revisit it. I never wanted to really sweat out. You know, a lot of some of the details. I mean, obviously, we'd work them out, me and the editor or whatever. But he, he even he'd even talk about how his coverage wasn't thorough enough, and it would get him into all sorts of problems in the editing room because it was just going to be such a pain in the ass to get more coverage. And I was well, just that actually. Yeah, wow. sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> but go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Because I'm actually a big proponent of just anti-coverage because mm-hmm. coverage is lazy. And so if he wanted, knew what he wanted, and you can see sometimes in new movies. No, Hitchcock knows what he wants. <laughs> Hitchcock never has to go back, at least according to the legend, because mm-hmm. he literally didn't get the shot. Woody Allen was talking about there were little really shots I didn't get that we needed. Yeah. So like that's but how the, he says in Hannah and Her Sisters, he comes up with the intertitles because yeah, he literally yeah. didn't get one of the shots. <laughs> so that he put in an intertitle. And he's like, well, you can't have just one intertitle. And that's how that wound up working out. Yeah. So that's a little many. different than. Yeah. But then that's the whole point that he openly says he's imperfectionist. He gets bored quickly. He doesn't rehearse. Yes. Everything's quick and the mm-hmm. material remains fresh, at least when it's comedy, it sort of, I guess, makes sense. I don't know. I don't mind that. I think that's contributes, or at least, I don't know, early. It did contribute the way I remember to the sort of the freshness of the, the films. They're not really this like, you know, uber produced, very thought through things. It just is a completely different thing. So it's like, I think it, that's Oh, I'm not sort saying I approve organic. or disapprove. I'm just saying it's mm-hmm. considering what what his reputation has always been, that wasn't part of mm-hmm. his reputation. <laughs> you know, it oh, just to wasn't. be like sort of imperfectionist, to be and kind sloppy, of cavalier that, about yeah. that kind of thing, to mm-hmm. the point of like, you know, I really want to go home and be there for the tip off on the basketball game, so I don't care. So I'm, we're just not going to get that shot, and then we'll figure it out in the end. <laughs> that that yeah. was his never part. He, again, so much reverence, and maybe he kind of had to be there in his real heyday when he was just like, oh my god, nobody had a bad word to say. Part of the reason, knows, though, yeah, is such who knows? A what if he's like, yeah, but what if he's like exaggerating? Who knows? What if he actually? Oh, and that's cared? true. You don't know. That's no, I mean, some of his examples are pretty like that. Hannah and her sisters one is very, very specific. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It, it just it doesn't go with how how the impression that was made in in those years when he was just like godlike, and so I and I should say again that's part of what the scandal was. He was so revered that to have this happen, he was even regarded as a kind of morally superior being. 
He really was, because the films he made often took on moral issues um, in a way that even if he was playing the Schlemiel, he was playing the Schlemiel whose morality was better. So like if you look at Broadway, Danny Rose, and he's this cheap, you get all these laughs, and a lot of it's very funny, uh, out of him being this really cheap, (laughs) low-level agent who has a series of terrible acts like a one-legged tap dancer and all the rest of it. And But in the end, he's capable of loyalty and true friendship and all the rest of it, and Mia Farrow's character is the one shown up as, you know, and the the star that he helps you know be the guy he the singer he makes a star they have no there's so there's all this morality that shows he's on the side of the angels ultimately um and a lot of that seeped into the woody allen image and so it went along with what a craftsman worshipped revered by other filmmakers only the best cinematographers the finest actors it was it was there was a kind of nothing but the finest um, attitude toward his work that made the scandal even more shocking than if there had been it would have been say a more kind of low rent or careless seeming director. Yeah, well, yeah, I I wouldn't know how he's pursued. He was perceived then. in the yeah then, yeah, then. when the scandal hit, but just before the scandal <laughs> discussions, I mean, I do have to say one thing that really struck me because I never give it a thought, but it's clearly true. He kept saying how he doesn't he I mean he writes because he you know gets up every day and he needs something to do and he he needs to write he can't just sit around because I mean that's I guess how he wired and he really cares nothing about the awards and he never shows up at any award shows and he doesn't care about competitions his movies like and all that and I think it's I mean I can't say anything about it it's very I think it's very admirable it's actually kind of rare in the industry and for, for people of his you know fame level or whatever the hell success and all that he he does he really doesn't necessarily need people to like pat him on the back flatter give him like oscars and like thank mm-hmm. thank 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 everyone from the stage and all that and it, it, i i don't know i think I, that's a very one of the, <laughs> the most kind of admirable qualities or the, the things i learned from the book and it's true i've never seen him on any kind of whatever whatever i watched which is rare too any kind of ceremony shows and i think he didn't even showed up when any hall received some a few academy right. awards and all that and it's kind of interesting because he really says like he doesn't do it for that and it's not the movies are not for competition it's not about competition it's for whoever like organizes that it's really not for the for the artist and and that's just about the process and that's how he lives so it's not mm-hmm. it's some kind of just a creative urge and uh and there's no reason not to believe him because he really doesn't participate in that i i found that kind of interesting because again how rare that is yeah no that, that is that good, seems pretty pure that did seem like a good quality that he really honestly is it's honestly honest. indifferent it seemed like and proved yeah, it. it seems honest yeah yeah <laughs> but he so also i mean he extends it into into areas that are that are even more extreme and that he's not interested in he claims in any movie he already made like so, he never would go back and watch his old movies. He's just like, yeah. That, you know what? Did. I can't believe that too. <laughs> how many he made first of all, yeah. and how if it's really so flippant and he's like imperfectionist and kind of cavalier, as you say, that makes sense too. But also, you know, back to you know, not an obsession, but me thinking about the just filmmaking as therapy, mm-hmm. and clearly some people engage it. And, and, you know, do it for I don't know some psychological reasons. Mm-hmm. He, even though he's like clearly a professional and been doing it for for decades, there's probably aspect of that you know for him. So he cannot do that. Mm-hmm. So it's really not about some sort of artistic thing. He needs to rewatch what a shot 
he are he like sad or what is seen so he probably doesn't care about it. something about the feeling that was there for a few months he was shooting it the yeah way, he makes a complete rights compelling case at least about that aspect of it absolutely he just says mm-hmm. yeah I'll, i do it for the experience of doing it that's the yeah, whole which thing which is very i mean kind of envious because he managed he's one of those few people who's like very prolific still is mm-hmm. and kind of fully fused his life with his work and it's just this kind of one mm-hmm. you know which how how many people can actually do that in any in any medium and let alone, like, I mean, the film was like a really hard one considering how much money and people you have to have around you to like pull that off. Right. So that's like a bizarre organic quality about that. Again, which for film, how is it even possible? Mm-hmm. If you paint, you're fine. You're like alone with your thing. But for movies, yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that's, that is, that seemed really something. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, there's no question. He totally won the lottery. I mean, it's, it, it it's a little weird that he's still at 84 you know, can't, he can't stop because you'd kind of think after a certain point, Mm -hmm. but no, no, he seems every bit as motivated. He's got to, that's presumably why he's, he's, and he says something like, well, if they won't let me film, I can do this. I can always write, you know, they can't stop me. I can all, I'll always be this massive productivity. And, and I guess he still tries to get films financed in various countries. It's, it's an, it's ongoing. Yeah. I mean, Man, what kind of the energy he has is uncanny. Yeah, you know? yeah, really uncanny. Yeah, and um, and and again, at the same time, he has like immense respect for writers because he admits that the writing part of the film is the hardest part. Well, and so. he says it almost always is why it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you don't even bother looking at all this other stuff. He keeps saying, no, it's almost always going to be the script and you just didn't perceive the problems with the script. It's almost always. Yeah. So, he, so he really is a writer in that way. It's the, the writing is practically all. And without that, the thing's going to fail ultimately. Yeah. So True. that was interesting. Yeah, and he's almost like, you know, I used to read a few of his screenplays back in the day, but mm-hmm. it, it's almost, he's a, definitely a playwright. His screenplays are very readable. And I mean, it's not, you can't say that about, I don't know, I guess many filmmakers sometimes, but he's a really like plays. So yeah, and he managed somehow to elevate, you know, himself into this, you know, screenwriter, director kind of position, which is, seems like historically in Hollywood, kind of hard to pull off. I don't know, probably easier now, not clear, because he, he used, says when he was coming up, sort of authors in Hollywood were kind of uh, one step, something like, I forgot, beneath the caterer. Right, beneath the caterer. That's <laughs> something like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that, that yeah. stayed with me. And it's like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> so if you can kind of remain some sort of author, but make movies. That's, yeah, and the that series of very- flukes that he doesn't even mm-hmm. choose by which he winds up you know, being in films and he thinks the first ones he's involved with, what are they again? What's new pussycat and what's oh, up God. tiger? What's Lily? up tiger Lily? Horrible <laughs> movies. Yeah. And he's just, you know, he does it for the money and he's, you know, and hates what he gets. But then I forget, I forget exactly what the segue is that he winds up doing, take the money and run. And I think by then he's got that agent, some agent. Yeah. Who just is to- a total believer that he can be huge and he gets, and he winds up with, to- even though it's not in the contract, they just let him go. And they, and he has winds up with total control. And then of course he makes sure it's in the contract from then on. So it's just like the, his segue into film is again, this miracle of, of, of luck. He just moves out of, you know, stand up comedy and being a super successful writer. And, you know, and I should just note, 
when I first started reading, I had forgotten because, you know, I'd read his earlier books, like Without Feathers and This mm-hmm. Couple of Mothers and, you know, hilarious and great. And, and it was so nice. I was like, oh, my God. I was like, I was able to rediscover why one of the reasons I'd initially been such a fan, because, you know, a lot of the early stuff is still really funny and seems pretty sharp. And it doesn't last. But I mean, but his his writerly self was really inspirational. It's a little... It's a little dated now. You can kind of get the echo of a ki- the kind of the kind of one-liner punchline that that has that's mm-hmm. an echo of an older form. But he's still quick enough and insightful enough, and um, that it, you that talk it still about works. The screenplays, or the, I was just talking the about right, the, the, book. the memoir in this case the and memory. the earlier books of you know. Yeah. I know, but the memoir though, those one-liners that are still there, and you can see his, you know, his yeah, mind yeah. is still agile. It sort of has though this quality. It's everything is sort of a bit, uh, you know, extremely predictable. So exactly, uh, it's now he's done it a million times. Now, <laughs> yeah, but it's sort of uh, like nothing has actually seemed fresh. <laughs> uh, at least the kind of the type of one-liners he he just used. Oh, that's what I mean. You know, it's yeah. it's like for me, it was it was a great nostalgia moment because it mm-hmm. took me back to when it his writing was fresher. <laughs> um, but now, yeah, it has all this quality of oh, you can tell that's kind of old time writing, and that yeah. he's and that he's done these kind of jokes, these kind of segues. Well, you know, I guess then it's sort of uh, <laughs> nice to see that even he cannot escape being of a certain era, even mm-hmm. though as a filmmaker, you know, he's notorious for sort of keeping up with young actors and always casting the new hot mm-hmm. I mean until recently I guess when people worked with him mm-hmm. the, the hot young Hollywood actor and always making stories still about like younger people and all that but yeah you're, you're right now thinking about it yeah in this memoir when you read and see those like punchlines it's sort of he's very much of the I don't know old generation of mm-hmm. comedians who think that's he even has it's, he even has old fogey parts where mm-hmm. he talks about how you know people shouldn't use foul language because oh, that's yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was, <laughs> Like really, Woody? Come on! <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. He's sort of actually very genteel, like kind of right. He oh, he never... is. He is it's completely. Yeah, and yeah. you can tell I that mean, he's kind of sweet. He admits he was always besotted by the genteel life, right? You know, his whole mm-hmm. dream of having a penthouse, which ultimately he gets, where you're, he gets, you know, yeah. the guy's mixing his <laughs> cocktails and for a beautiful diva. woman <laughs> and all that stuff, is and then he goes and lives it out. You know, he lives it out. Oh, I have to. Say so. His uh, pen, whatever the um, the latest penthouse, I guess he mentions that actually mm-hmm. the street that any Hall character used yeah. to live at East East um, on the Tenopoly side is Seventy Street of Park Avenue. Uh, it's actually one street away, so one block away from Hunter College, mm-hmm. <laughs> where I went. And I have to say, I've I've like. Sp- seen him walking to his penthouse oh, really? from the coffee shop that has like an outsider where everyone hangs out. Oh, well, actually, yeah, and he, the, there's mm-hmm. two different ones. He winds up with Sunyi in a brownstone. Well, that's some that's other you, one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The that's penthouse some other was one. earlier, I thought. They, he gave oh, no, it no, up. No. Okay, no, no, no. Okay, so there was some penthouse where she lived alone or whatever, like yeah. a bachelor lifestyle. Then there is some, uh, God, I'm a dork. Yeah, there's some sort of brownstone, supposedly really huge. He describes that were somewhere in the 90s mm-hmm. um, street. And then uh, the upper east side as well. Mm-hmm. And then, so the latest one—that's the one you know. Yeah, you can you can walk by it now. Mm-hmm. It's really pretty. It's like a four-story. Uh, I guess it's a brownstone. Yeah, but mm-hmm. basically, like a brownstone with a like um, 
some kind of garden on the roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's that's a block away from Hunter College. And right. uh, yeah, everyone sees him there. And he, he really kind of like walks real fast mm-hmm. with his, you know, famous kind of, you know, this hat his that kind of covers <laughs> yeah. half of his face. Yeah, <laughs> He's so small and he kind of like runs towards towards his house yeah yeah yes. supposedly like um his family sometimes harassed by tourists or some chinese tourists mm-hmm. in the central park like which again a block away from his house mm-hmm. so i don't know well i didn't i didn't harass him but um <laughs> but yeah but he, he's there yeah which is kind of interesting he's like really didn't leave the place he like lived in manhattan his entire life and yeah within like probably 10 blocks right <laughs> bizarre right Yes, you know, there's that period in the in the memoir where he speculates, he goes to Paris for the first time and he loves it so much, he, he thinks about moving there. And then later in the memoir, he's like, boy, what would my life have been? And, you know, he goes on and on. And, you, and you're just thinking, you never would have lived there. <laughs> you know, what are you talking yeah. about, old man? You were going to live in Manhattan your whole life. It was faded. Yeah. Yeah. But, but again, I don't know, even though it's so confined and bizarre that he lived his whole life and his whole, most of his movies are about that, I don't know, like <laughs> one little island. But again, he milked everything he could out of that. So right, right. more than people who like, I don't know, travel the world and move around and I don't know, mm-hmm. do what, do some fantastic books or movies but he really milked everything out of i don't know and i have to say 20, I, I am a fan of that kind of thing if, if that's oh, just that approach right feeling for for you should stick so you know i was always the one saying what is scorsese doing making age of innocence and all this uh, the aviator and <laughs> yeah, all this shit <laughs> you know he's good with low-level criminals and gangsters in, you know in new york and why doesn't he just keep mining it and mining it and mining it i'd watch a million of those films if they inspire him they bring out the best in him but he always and wanted organic to. that's the organic part yeah. too comes in because there's yeah. something just comes out out of your i don't know like you oozing <laughs> right your right pores and that's you know again that with talent <laughs> does a lot mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know yeah so that's i don't know what about else to say but uh okay i think i gotta uh, we, we have to talk about the scandal but we when have you, to uh did you closely follow obviously woody's kind of almost as if he's in court i mean i had forgotten a lot i mean at the time mm-hmm. of course everyone was agog you know when it breaks since in 1992 and it was the biggest yeah. scandal to come out of hollywood and i don't know when mm-hmm. um so then i followed it i'd forgotten a ton of it <laughs> And so I went back and, you know, obviously I read the memoir, but I also read a yeah. bunch of other stuff that I had read once. I'd, you know, I'd read a lot of coverage of it. That mm-hmm. I, so I reread a bunch of it just to remind myself, God, what a fucking convoluted mess the yeah. whole thing is. I mean, when you read about the, you know, the investigations by, you know, child abuse what boards or whatever they're called, you know, of and Yale, then, I think. Of yeah, Yale. it was, the, it was mm-hmm. the, yeah, Yale New Haven board of child abuse something i forget the name of it that was passed you know like it was first it goes to i forget i forget who who first heard but it was someone who was legally obligated to tell the police and then the police passed it to this board and then that's the Mm -hmm. first investigation that winds up saying we can't find any any evidence and and in fact, it seems as if, you know, it's a little bit ambiguous, but it, it pretty clearly says we don't recommend a further um, case because, you know, it looks like the girl, the little girl, Dylan, who was supposedly molested, had been coached. Mm-hmm. 
So, of course, Woody Allen leans very heavily and quotes extensively. Yeah. He goes on and on. There's, I think there's 90 pages of all told <laughs> of how blow by blow he goes through this. It really sort of stops the whole book while he parses the insane ins and outs. I mean, it just goes on and on. And then it revive the whole thing revives again. You know, first, we should go back. The beginning of the scandal is... <laughs> Woody Allen has an affair with the 21-year-old, I think she's 21 when it starts, adopted daughter of Mia Farrow, whose name is Sunyi Previn, because she, um, she was adopted by uh, Andre Farrow and Andre Previn, her then husband. Um, so they have an affair. Woody Allen takes erotic photos of Sunyi, leaves them on the mantle of his apartment, and he and Mia Farrow live across Central Park from each other and they're constantly going back and forth to each other's apartment. She goes into the apartment, finds the photos. There's just a, it's like a bomb goes off. <laughs> um, um, so that's the beginning. That's the initial big scandal. And of course, the way it comes out and the things Mia Farrow was saying and, and just rumors, it was supposedly the underage daughter, which she wasn't, of you know, what everyone thought was the solid couple of Woody Allen and Mia Farrow, who not only had they been a couple, as far as everyone knew, a totally involved couple, she was starring in every one of his films. And this had gone on for 12 years. And I think she was in 13 of his films. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they gave, they would give interviews. I mean, it was just, it just looked from the outside like they were, so this was just, yeah, like a total couple. Of course, in, in his memoir, Woody Allen really downplays it. He makes it sound like by the time he gets involved with, he isn't, fully broken up he hasn't formally severed their relationship but it's really cooled down and you know but he also makes a good point if it again if it's true they never lived together he never spent yes he makes a lot of in her place that yes they never but he he also that he used to and again i read too too many interviews with Mm -hmm. woody allen over the course of his career people would used to ask about how they conducted their their eccentric romance because everyone knew you know he always said oh no we've always lived apart um, and he would, and they would, and literally people would ask him about their sex life. How do you manage? And he would answer, and he'd answer at length. And he'd be like, "Well, what's wrong with sex in the afternoon? It's the best sex anyway." And he'd go on and on and on about it. It was a real TMI situation. You'd be like, "Ah, didn't really need to know. You didn't have to answer that." But he was, he seemed proud to talk at length about how they'd worked out for them this perfect relationship. But yeah, technically they never lived together. Um, but again, right across the street, and the implication was always back, back and forth all the time. Um, so anyway, that was the first bombshell, you know, and he wound up defending himself in a way that 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 really threw gas on the fire. He doesn't he he refers briefly to this in the in the book. The line that got all the play was the heart wants what it wants. Yeah, and the way he delivered the line was so flippant. You know, so shrugging off the whole thing. And he said other things like, I didn't see that it was any big deal. <laughs> you know, he really just that he just it was like pouring gasoline on. And in the book, he says something like, I was only quoting Saul Bellow, who was quoting Emily Dickinson. And you're just like, man, that ain't helping you. <laughs> he shouldn't have said that. that doesn't even sound that doesn't sound any better. That sounds pretentious now on top of everything else. So anyway, that that alone was a colossal scandal. And then, of course, it's followed up by the. You know, by the by, the then molestation charges that supposedly um, Woody Allen had been seen by what uh, t- some of the other children. Mia had a huge brood of you know, both biological children Adopt- and adopted children. Yeah. Seven when she met, I believe Woody Allen. Ten by the time 
She's done. It sounds insane. Oh my god, that's a lot <laughs> that's- of kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so at any rate, uh, an accusation that he had molested the seven-year-old adopted daughter, and it gets super complicated. Even trying to follow who it's very hard Woody now. Allen considers himself a father figure too is convoluted. He picks of most of the children he remains, and the word always uses aloof from. And he even talks about, like, he wasn't really involved much with them, even though they all traveled together and had vacation houses together and everything else. He just wasn't that involved with it. He claims he didn't even like Soon Yi. She seemed like a sullen girl. They had no relationship, you know, before they finally get together once she's going to college. But he picks out one of Mia Farrow's children that she'd adopted with Andre Preben, which is Moses, and he becomes a favorite. And ultimately, Woody Allen adopts him. So it's him, Dylan, who's adopted by he and Mia Farrow together, and then Satchel, who's their biological child. Or not. Or not. Right. <laughs> or not. Right? Or, or, he's, or else Frank Sinatra followed him. That's another later uh, mom's film. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I do have to say, just to, to interrupt you for a second, if Woody Allen, the, the, the great comedian, mm-hmm. um, but he wanted always some sort of like beat tradition or some kind of Greek tragedy, being like a great dramatist. It, that he reached in his like uh, personal life. Yes. If, if he if he ever reached some sort of Greek tragedy, that's right. the personal life, not the movies. Right, right, right. Which I think is it was just so riveting. I mean, you just don't get scandals like this that keep yeah. on they keep so on really it's really off. like Sophocles oh or something God. you would think, right? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so it's like, well, you wanted it, you got it. Yes, and you know, admittedly, Woody Allen can't see what he can't see. He's he's arranged his life the way he wants, and he's so successful and powerful a figure that he's a lot, can. And so the weirdness of things, he just doesn't seem to notice at all. So he never, he doesn't, clearly in the book, doesn't think there's anything weird that he'd pick one out of the seven children that Mia Farrow has to have a relationship with. But if you think about it, you're like, well, how the fuck weird is that? You, you're going over there every day pretty much having, you know, being cordial but having no relationship to the other kids. But you're spending all this time with one kid. And then you add the other two kids that you would have together and you spend all this time with them. But not the other – I'm just like, what a situation. Just So so he not, he charges Mia Farrow with being a terrible mother on many grounds. Yeah. But one of them is her favoritism. She she really favors her own biological children and there's all this and stuff like that. And makes others, I think, servants, And others are kind of like servants who have to take care of the other children. There's, yeah, there's a lot of really inflammatory charges about how terrible a mother she is but he doesn't see his own like that maybe that's kind of weird that you picked out one kid of the whole flock and well, devoted he makes all your attention that, to but i guess he makes a point that that was a you know she was like tiny when she got adopted or whatever a few months old so i think no no i was talking about he, moses oh yeah that's not clear and, and that's the only son who comes who out who came in support of him? Yes, yeah. with a huge defense that was only came out two years ago. Oh, I did. Yeah, <laughs> I did, I did too. One. I don't know. I tend. I mean, I want to believe. <laughs> I it's very believe. compelling, and partly because he grounds a lot of it in very physical details, like yeah. what supposedly took place in the attic couldn't have taken place in the attic, and the electric toy train that supposedly did she not was exist. watching. Yes, while while being molested. There was no train up there. And, you know, she, he, so he really does make a very compelling case that Mia is the, the the true insane one and all of these charges were false. Oh, and Woody Allen as God, it's like he says, she said that potentially uh, Mia got an idea about this attic sexual abuse from a son, Dory Previn, oh, right, right. ex-wife of Andre right. Previn, whom she stole it 
the husband yes. from wrote like years ago years and there before. were some lines years before yeah some lines about this like attic and the train and the train running rounds and rounds or something like whatever it's like yeah some line and well there's that <laughs> i don't know how if yeah, that's he goes true, into that's mia farrow's entire life to demonstrate how She's so totally insane that her whole family, he doesn't just throw her under the bus, you know, in his own defense. Her whole family is horrifyingly disturbed, he claims, that she grew up in. Well, Father but isn't it true? Abuser. Well, her no, brother is a convicted. But, yeah, but her brother is a convicted pedophile. Look it up. True. He's in jail. Oh, I don't doubt it. But what's the line? He says, well, one of her brothers commits suicide, one dies at the controls of a plane, and one is in, ch- in jail for, for actually molesting children. And I'm like, wait, how does being dying at the controls of the plane <laughs> make you some sort of psychotic? But he's clearly somehow trying to say these are all extremely messed up people. But I'm like... What's wrong with what's wrong with flying a plane? <laughs> well, it's all just works together. All yeah, the somehow in his mind, it's all like, who are these? Because you know, for one thing, Woody Allen hates flying, so probably to him, that just seems like this guy must have some sort of suicidal urge, or what would he be doing at the controls of a plane? So there's that kind of weirdness. Where okay, what about another one? Like the one that hits me really hard, and I don't know, is it an ever within news as he says he was that Mia to like convinced like Satchel Ronan basically the guy who hates him the most mm-hmm. supposedly his biological son to go and under, like, undergo the operation to lengthen his um his legs to become yeah, taller. Yeah, I saw that. I just don't know because I know nothing about it. So if that's true, I mean, that's legitimately insane because he says that it was covered as some kind of knee but, surgery, you know, some problematic thing. But in truth, Mia wanted him to be taller because she how said can we need know? to be that, tall to have a career in politics. I'm like, what? Well, yeah, that <laughs> would be is, nuts. But I mean, this is yeah. that one you're like, but how do how who's vouching for this beyond Moses, who, of course, adores Woody Allen and, and is endured in return. So you're kind of like... I, I don't know. Maybe that's true, but you can't get any purchase on that one. That one's hard to evaluate, but it's certainly a I mean, I can go down the rabbit hole, but I don't know. All you can find, I guess, that there was some sort of operation, but you would never find out what the hell that was. But okay, but another the thing, the more timely thing that he uses is an argument, which, which is true. It's weird to act like, like you know, like women say only truth and that's innocent mm-hmm. creatures. He just say, yeah, now, you know, after Me Too, which he supports and all that, he just says there's like this weird thing about believing women. And he, he has a funny line, one of his good one-liners, I mm-hmm. think. He says like, well, tell it to Scottsboro boys. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's true. I mean, he, he makes a good point. Why? By default, majority of people in the last few years, because there's a new kind of cultural turn, right? By default, believe like the woman's side of the story, and that's well. I think we're bizarre. we're we're so on record, the both of us, as as saying that's the hugest flaw with the whole Me Too yeah. movement. Absolutely, that's absolutely right. But but it's so complicated. I mean, like things like okay, so he's cleared, you know, mm-hmm. by the that investigating the- board. If if According to Alan Dershowitz, who's a pig and gets involved later, mm-hmm. he's retained as a lawyer by Mia Farrow. But, the, you know, he's kind of knew both of them, but he gets retained by Mia Farrow. He winds up saying, you know, it would never have gone any further, probably. But then then Woody Allen sues Mia Farrow for custody of just the three kids. Moses, uh, uh, I keep forgetting their names, Dylan and Satchel. Satchel, mm-hmm. who becomes Ronan Farrow. Ronan. They're always changing their names. That's another thing. Um. Oh, yeah, so he was supposed to become Gigi. I remember that. I'm yeah, like, what? and then she refused to take the <laughs> <Okay>. new name. 
Yeah. G-G? G-G, I know. I know. Okay, yes. Yeah, but at any rate, that that's when tons more dirt either gets mined, made up, or comes out somehow because it's the custody battle. It could have ended fairly soon and fairly wildly. But then, you know, and of course in the book, he's saying, well, I'm trying to rescue these kids because, you know, they're in this terrible situation. So I'm trying to rescue them. But that's where all the, the real dirt starts getting developed of, you know, them all the everyone fi- hears about all the details of the molestation charges all the back and forth servants testifying for and against um it, there's just all of these people who get brought in <laughs> to make inflammatory charges for and against it's just this huge spectacle that goes on for for months longer um and that l- wind up and of course this is where Woody Allen claims there was such favoritism on the part of what was at the state attorney and the judge on Mia Farrow's behalf that he actually insinuates very strongly in the book that she's sleeping with both of them and uh, no evidence whatsoever. And you're like, well, you know, because he winds up losing the case. He winds up, you know, losing all custody of the kids. He never sees Dylan again, I believe. He's allowed to see Satchel and he does for like a year. But in his account, the boy's mind is so poisoned against him that he winds up giving up because it's being regarded by the by Satchel as like torture to have to see him, and and of course there's, it interrupts his relationship to Moses for many years. Um, so yeah, but he makes this crazy charge out of no that he knows he can't back up, even if it's true he can't back it up. But he just throws it out there <laughs> that she must have been sleeping with both of them. You're just like, you know, man, sometimes man, you're no friend to yourself <laughs> if you'd rein it in a little. Wow. <laughs> So it's that well, kind of mess. Who knows, right? I mean, well, no, we can't know. But I mean, we can't know. Here he's trying to make the argument that all of this, there's no real evidence, and yet everyone believed her. And then he throws out these crazy claims on no evidence. But he never seems to see, like, oh, yeah, yeah, that might have been a problem on my end too. He just, he's got blind spots that you can really, you can drive trucks through them. They're so huge. So it's just such a mess. And of course, if you go on to read journalistic accounts, interviews, you can go on and on. Believe me, I just did. Again, trying to refresh my mind of who sent what. So much evidence and counter evidence, claims and counter claims. You know, the the thing about Woody Allen saying, I was, yeah, there's an attic. It's more like a crawl space and I've never even been up there. Then supposedly, according to this one account, the cops said, you know, we went up there and took fingerprints and then Woody Allen supposedly said, well, actually, you might find my fingerprints up there. (laughs) So... It's that kind of thing where you start getting into it's really down the rabbit hole stuff where it's just endless, endless claims and counterclaims. Well, what about the most famous line, which again, it's Woody Allen's sister. So I don't know right. how can you believe it? The fact that Mia called her and said, or wanted to tell Allen that he took my daughter and I'll take yours. Yes, which Woody which Allen leans on very hard. Obviously, leans very hard. Yeah, but that's the whole motivation. He uh, always said that. He said that all the way along. He didn't use that line, but he said all the way along, "This is a clear vendetta because she's furious that you know." And he doesn't even really acknowledge, at least especially at the time, it was shocking the way he just kept saying, "I don't see what the big deal was." And you're like, man, if you'd at least told Mia Farrow it's over, we're not really involved anymore, especially when you knew you had a yen for Sun Yi. But he doesn't. He's still, as far as she knows, involved with him, on more or less on the old basis, even though it's cooled down a lot. And he just can't seem to get 
in the book, he tried, he realizes that didn't play well. So he's trying to say, of course, of course, she had a terrible reaction to that. Of course, that makes sense. She should have been angry, you know, he, but at the time it was really bizarre. And that really freaked people out who loved him so much, especially who loved him as a kind of morally serious guy who considers moral issues in his films. It just seems so bizarre that he shrugged this whole thing off as if what, like, I don't see why everyone's making this. <laughs> and everyone's like, like but she yeah. was your, but you know, essentially for 12 years, you were the mother's boyfriend and, you seem like you were in some sort of fatherly relationship. What the hell? And of course he refutes that and says, I never acted like a father to any of them. But at the time, that's not what people understood about a much talked about relationship. So anyway, what a mess. What yeah. a mess. One thing though I want to add, because it seems like, I don't know, I'm, I sort of tend to believe at least some of what he, he's writing or saying. What he seems you, less what? insane than Mia. Oh, well, but one but thing, I mean, how he do, just seems less you, insane. What are you one waiting thing, more than no, other. No, no, no. It, the 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 kind of the thing that um sort of affects me in uh, I'm not mm-hmm. a big fan or anything, but I watch a bunch of his movies. The thing, and he seems you know again uses the therapy, so he works out all his whatever fantasies or issues through these different narratives in the movies. And the thing you can see, which is totally normal, he obviously like most men, he just likes young women, and not young too, but young as well. So young and beautiful women. So and there's. It's it's frequently there, Manhattan or whatnot, and I mean, there's nothing weird about it, and it's very oh, different from on. being a pedophile. It's very different from being oh, a pedophile. Oh, it is, of course, it's completely different. But come on, you have to have noticed that in the memoir. It's just ridiculous. You can't mention any woman. I mean, why he doesn't just keep a score sheet? I don't know. Every woman is evaluated in terms of it's it's incredible. Poor Louise Lasser. It just goes on and on, even while he's charting. Oh, well, she did this insane thing and that. Oh, he goes on and on about her problem. He throws her under the bus so hard. Louis, poor Louise Lasser, who clearly, you know, I forget what they call it now, bipolar, mm-hmm. manic, depressive. She's oh, clearly man. mentally ill. And it, but he keeps endlessly going on about, but she was so hot. She was just so hot. People thought she was, you know, mistook her for Mar- for Bridget Bardot. You know, she was just so sexy. She was just so sexy. How does it have to do with being a pedophile? He does it with, oh, no, it doesn't. I'm just saying That's all I'm saying Your argument that it's a totally normal relationship Of a man to beautiful women It isn't It's excessive you, As you're reading the book you're, You just start laughing Every time he mentions a woman He's got to evaluate her in terms of her look Scarlett Johansson You've got to fight your way through the fair gnomes To get to her You just wait for the description every time I mean the mildest is beautiful He always has to rate their looks Always Always I mean that was extreme it's, You're right It has nothing to do with being a pedophile but it's just yeah, I think that's that's the only point it's just I'm an making. attitude think, toward women that's well you could I guess you could say it's very much a generation oh very but, much so but that again that he has no he, he's never gained any insight all this hell later and you're just like really you've just never gotten any insight into this whatsoever and it's so old man it's so like sad old man god she was hot god. and you're like man you're 84 <laughs> can, can you not even in retrospect go yeah Maybe maybe I should have realized Louise Lasser was terribly troubled. Maybe I should have realized <laughs> Mia was. You know, he goes down the whole list of like red flags about Mia that he well, didn't he realize says, at the yeah, time. Louise might have been like sick. He did. He does say about mental. He does. Illness. Yes, but what? Why does he say he can't really 
he can never he never does anything about he never he never seems to compassionately try to help her. He never seems to like suggest we really need to work with what this is, you know, he but he does harp constantly on I was just so overwhelmed by and he explicitly says that with Mia. He says, those big blue eyes, that incredible face, I just I just couldn't see it. And you're like, by this time, he's in his late 40s and, and 50s. But it's, and it's funny. Like, we look so differently at it. I look at him. <laughs> it's He's just a dupe. I mean, it's actually not any evil thing. Oh, he like objectifies women over and over again and even at 84. I, it's more like he's just constantly taken by this physical attributes it's so funny it's like he he is the dupe well except it isn't funny but you know by the time he gets to mia farrow he's in his late 40s and 50s he gets involved with this woman there's gonna be all he's the whole point of his description is there's gonna be all this hideous fallout but once again i i just i just sort of never noticed anything because i was so busy ogling her and loving the the fact that she knew all these celebrities this is the other thing but he isn't it honest it's not very flattering can't. about him it's 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 not a flattering portrait of himself as a kind of a guy who even in his older age doesn't fucking learn anything and is as just like remains some sort of like dumb teenage boy in certain respects so i think it's actually not a flattering portrait i i had no trouble reading it but i i I didn't have trouble reading it i just thought my god man it's like you kind of acknowledge it at the same time you're like meh (laughs) and then you go right on doing it you go right on doing it with every other woman you work with every woman you talk about you can't seem to get your mind away. I mean, the one exception is Sun Yi. He gets very reverent and tender about Sun Yi, but he also is like, it's part of an argument that's a little bit like, a little queasy making, where it's like, I'm, 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 my biggest defense is my argument about me and Sun Yi having this perfect marriage, marriage for 20-some years. And but you know what, did you, did you notice the dedication on, in the book? It says, for Sun Yi, the best. I had her eating out of my hand, yes. and then I and then I noticed my arm was my missing. My arm was missing. I'm like, what? Yep. <laughs> yep. What is that about? Yeah, that's that's kind of an odd image <laughs> for for a man with his history to be to be using as a dedication. He's clearly trying for what he thinks is a funny one liner, you know. And later he talks about how she runs the whole show like a Prussian general, you know, and and that's fine. That's what makes her happy. So she she she's the boss completely. She orders him around. And everything else. I'm assuming that's what he initially thinks. Oh, poor waif. I'm going to help her. He talks about that. I'm going to make sure she has a great life because she had such a terrible, you know, early life. Um, so it starts. I think that's what he means. It starts off with me feeling like, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do everything for this lovely young woman. And then she turns around and is way tougher, way more hardcore. But yeah, the eating of the arm <laughs> is like, hmm not the smartest image anyone ever came up with so yeah, that's what i mean that's all i'm saying is like it's like he still has these colossal blind spots that you can't believe even while he's writing this out and given the focus on the huge scandal that engulfs his life at a, at a certain point and goes on engulfing it because of course keep keep in mind it keeps coming back you know so we haven't talked about that the 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 following the next waves of scandal when i guess he wins um a golden globe the cecil b demille award for i don't know total career some sort of contribution i forget what it's for he wins that award and dylan farrow the one who claims she was molested as a child 
writes a big op-ed, I guess, that gets published and starts the whole thing over again. Then what happens? Something else happens. The Me Too movement and the Harvey Weinstein stuff comes up. She writes and again. Ronan Farrow also writes contributing. Then two years ago, Moses Allen writes his defense of Woody Allen. So it's just like every few years, there's there's another wave of the Woody Allen scandal that doesn't die. Yeah, but um, but yeah, in the book, kind of he sort of makes almost light of it that he he says he doesn't care he you know what what kind of legacy will remain because of all his accusations because he doesn't care about legacy yeah and he just prefers to live in his apartment. But <laughs> for someone who does, but others, again, yeah. you can't take that seriously, can you? He just wrote a book in which just this massive chunk <laughs> is in fact trying to argue point by point. I know everything he thinks was charged against him. I mean, incredible detail. That doesn't suggest he really doesn't care what his legacy is. Well, yeah, well, he did. Well, I guess, you know, he's close to the to the other side. So he had to <laughs> he had to write something. Even though he's a total... He was, rather, he was pretty quiet for like, what, 20... How long it's well, going that's on? What I, that's why I was years. surprised when, yeah. when the book came out. I was like, you're kidding. After he no. actually went to silence, which was smart. Mm-hmm. And just decided to say no more. And then all of a sudden, wow. Yeah. And he quotes Moses Ellen's um, piece at length and length and repeatedly, yeah, which yeah. makes sense. It's the one the one child coming out of the, the Farrah family other than Sun Yi who's, um, who defends him. Because Ronan Farrow yeah. continues to, you know, uh, and obviously Dylan does. The others are silent. I don't think there's anything from the other children. Well, and some of them are dead from all kind of weird diseases and, and suicides, too. And suicides. There's One two, two suicides. I, I talk about adopted children. Someone, like, shot himself not far away from Mia's house. And one had One woman overdosed. died from AIDS, like, oh, alone. Wait, who was the what overdose? I thought someone... Maybe they were they were addicted to drugs, was, I guess that was. Like they didn't overdose. weird deaths. Yeah, there were like, doesn't there strange speak deaths. well of Mia. <laughs> but... But who knows? Yeah, who knows Mia. What? If you certainly, if you're reading a number of the accounts, Mia, I, my, I, we've already talked about this in the last. I think when we were talking about introducing it, I think they're just both pieces of work that are <laughs> terrifying. But it's very, very hard to parse because even the servants are split. You've got some that were totally saying no, they're they're trying to pressure me into supporting Mia's side, and I and I can't. I never saw anything. And then others who were like, no, he was totally sexually inappropriate. It's, it's amazing, the divisions um, at every level, depending who you consult. And of course, there's legions of people in the kind of Me Too mode who are just not having it. They're not having anything Woody Allen has to say. But it has been well, some shocking accounts that have come out about Mia's mothering because she had such a saintly image, very much like, you know, Angelina yeah. Jolie managed to achieve through the same means. You adopt children from all around the world and everyone's like, oh. And disabled. Wonderful. Yes, and disabled and yeah. people from very unfortunate circumstances. And so you're the, the, the Lady Bountiful rescuer. And then, you know, you've got some really shocking counter counter um, accounts from people like Moses Allen. Yeah. I don't know. Well, <laughs> I, don't, I mean, it's not that I'm trusting the book 100%, just because I guess the overall, the sort of semi-senile quality of his writing now. Mm-hmm. It, it, again, just to say that he's, and he comes off himself as not the most like pretty unflattering character in, in many ways. So I don't know. I tend to more or less 
kind of believe the overall narrative, you know, and he's like such a self-involved guy dwelling constantly yes. on his, all of his minutiae, I don't know, of life and this and that woman. It, I don't know. So I, I kind of, there's something pretty, again, <laughs> I guess his whole like organic oversharing persona is there. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I tend to sort of kind of rely on that narrative more oh or less. I, and I, I can't, I don't, know, I don't yeah. know how anyone can judge from the outside. It's so impossible. I mean, I guess it's you can, hard, you yeah, can yeah. just say, just, I believe the first investigation maybe, but, the then, investigation. but then even that was so bizarre because I read follow up. They burnt mm-hmm. all their notes because, you know, when the custody trial came up, they wanted members of that investigating team to testify and nobody would testify and they had burnt all their notes. Well, you know what's it's interesting like, though? What? But what about like the fact that the other side and we should probably stop but like, you know, people like who know him closely and been with him like Diane Keaton and a bunch of other women, um, you know, they they the ones who stood by him through all this. Well, some of the women, <laughs> have, all the, certainly it, Diane Keaton. Yeah, I can find is, Diane is, Keaton. And she seems so, I don't know, normal in comparison to me. In many ways, I don't. So, think, like I a, just don't. Like I mean, I mean on the other hand, you know, Woody Allen just tosses off, you know, in a line or two, the fact that he has a, lo- a long, important relationship with Diane Keaton, and then proceeds yeah. to sleep with have have affairs with each of her sisters. He plows his way through that her is entire weird. family. Like, I noticed that. I was like, how? <laughs> Wait, what? What? And you're just it that's goes weird. by so quickly. You're like, that's all you're going to say? That's really bizarre. <laughs> So that also makes you think. Wait, you, yeah. you sure sound like much more of a player than you are. You are letting on, you know. Uh, that kind of know. really makes you wonder what kind of world are you used to living in? That you just move down the line from one sister to the next. <laughs> yeah. So I don't that know. Is weird. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. Do you have any <laughs> some kind of bird closing remarks? I, I wish it's you know again. You read it, you feel unclean. You're like showbiz people are fucking nuts, which is very clear. You know, at every level, um, yeah. stuff goes on in the way lives are ordered that are just like it's there, there's so much festering. And you know, again, I've only had a few peeks into it when I was hanging around the fringes of Hollywood, but I recognize it exactly. Like, why is this also unwholesome? There's too many servants there's too there's just too much weird at every level of, of like the way right uh, the way so. rich famous people tend i'm sure there's great examples of not that at all but uh, tend to, to set up their lives it's like what's wrong with you can't you tell that's a problem and like no the answer is no so anyway i guess i i come i just come at it from that angle just like wow this is again <laughs> another sick one <laughs> another so sick at every level so wrong at every level yeah yeah it's <laughs> funny yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, have you, I mean, since it's closing anyway, have you been um, kind of following or do you want to participate in any like film uh, related Zoom events? Because it's all, you know, there are weird premieres mm-hmm. on Zoom and uh, they're like weird workshops and talks and all that. I was thinking, I mean, I was mainly, I think I sent you the link to the, the I don't know if that's it, the Global Film the Festival, can. but mm-hmm. yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I guess we're going to have to because the way things are going. Something's going to have to happen. 
Yeah. Have you signed true, up for any? Um, well, I would. What you send me, I definitely want to probably yeah. see something. How the hell is even the festival is gonna be? You yeah. know, um. how it's gonna operate? But for instance, yesterday, last night, uh, someone sent me a link from my whatever out of like the film school related stuff. Um, Sofia Coppola, out of her home, I don't know where in LA, mm-hmm. was doing sort of like a. Con- sort of a talk or interview she was being interviewed by her what is it cousin some mm-hmm. other couple of film, filmmaker mm-hmm. and that it was like a big event whatever i don't know how many hundreds of people joined and uh yeah that was like um i don't know it's a bizarre thing right everyone's sitting in their little, little office mm-hmm. and you know yeah and that's sort of pretends to be sort of almost horizontal mm-hmm. because like everyone is in their room and they're all this like little video avatars of people if you if you want to join in that way right Sophia is just one of them but she's the one kind of whatever purling her wisdom which is honestly no, didn't was, seem like I much I was about to say did, did anyone did everyone get to join in or was it really everyone just listening to Sophia <laughs> no the idea is that you were th- you're I mean, there to her, listen to her that, talk yeah you were there and then you, you could ask her questions which I don't know there was some moderator I was just interested in the format some moderator decided who would and then it really felt sort of semi you know as far as life goes horizontal because if you all stuck at home then there's like a video avatar of some mm-hmm. I don't know woman asking Sophia Sophia is like super friendly and answering you or whatever and then her kids like running around her and stuff like that so it's like super humanizing uh. but yeah but uh yeah i don't know it's a it's a really weird weird format but again okay not much wisdom there even though <laughs> really? she <laughs> what a surprise <laughs> what is... yeah i know you're not, you're not, not surprised <laughs> But I mean, not much wisdom, but I do have to say, and and people still can't have all the right to hate her and whatnot. Mm. She seemed rather kind of sweet. I don't know. There's something sweet about her. No, I think that is true. You know, I mean, she and she seems like wholesome family. Yes, in my memory, she and Mm -hmm. even though they were so pampered and princess and princessy, her and her brother Roman, you know, there was something very sweet. And and like uh, undeveloped, right? Yeah. Oh well, I didn't even formally mm-hmm. meet. I only met him, mm-hmm. Roman. Mm-hmm. Um, I never formally met her, but they they come in and out of the office periodically, so I'd see them. Yeah. Yeah. Way long almost ago. like is it because they're not never been touched by the evil yeah, side of the world? Exactly. You could just you tell know? that they the, the the bubble that Woody Allen talks about living in past a yeah. certain point of his career. They they took with them everywhere. <laughs> yes, they were such yeah. soft little, thin teens who had always had everything, everything. Yeah, but there's something. That's what I'm saying. That's why, even though you can hate them all they want, it, there's some kind of weird, almost potentially innocence there. If it is such a kind of weird bubble, but like yeah, some wholesome. <laughs> in a way, that's true. Yeah, that's, that's like a I don't know. That's a bizarre feeling, at least from like semi i don't know listening to her babble about this and that and her cousin seemed totally though insane i don't know what is it the cousin christopher i don't know she had oh, many christopher Coppola? oh yeah have you have you yes. met him how did i know him more <laughs> i think he was making a film on the low budget level when mm-hmm. i was there i don't not like i knew him knew him but yeah, yeah. he was also at in and out of the offices but was actually okay. making something at the b level and i forget what he kept saying how amazed he is and proud to be her cousin because she's the only couple of women, you know, really. Oh, <laughs> Basically, implication it was that I guess did something <laughs> with her life. Oh. <laughs> but I, but I was I mean it wasn't put that way. But so he's cool. It it's always like so nauseating. I will tell I will tell one unforgivable story. Do you mm-hmm. remember Anthony Mingella, the guy who did English Patient? And, oh, of uh, course. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, tell him Mr. Ripley and a bunch of other stuff. Well, you know, he's dead now. But 
but I mean, way back when I somehow, I can't even remember the circumstances. I wound up at a dinner with him at this huge long ass table. And he, of course, went, it was at the head of one and I was toward the foot of the other, myself and my husband were. Uh-huh. And, you know, we were with these filmmakers who were on the rise at the time. And that's how we wound uh-huh. up. I forget exactly why we were meeting. There was some reason. But at any rate, it was just like a dinner party. Social dinner. It was mm-hmm. so nauseous. It was one of those. I don't even want to know this. So it's like 12 people at this table. So everyone could should just, if it was a normal dinner, be talking mainly to the person, the people next to them or across from them. No, everyone, everyone turned three quarters in their seat to face (laughs) Anthony Minkel. (laughs) That's a great scene. And just sat there drinking in the lightest word from his lips. And to his credit, even he seemed aware that this was a little much. So he'd keep trying to throw out like, like my husband was saying nothing because this is a, this is designed to make my husband mm-hmm. Philippe just go mm-hmm. shoot me now and get me out, <laughs> just so I can get out be carried out of the room. <laughs> and he'd keep throwing questions to poor Philippe. <laughs> and then everyone would have to turn laboriously all the way around to face him because he, you know, he kept trying to get the attention and I'd keep trying to talk to other people, but you couldn't get anyone to like Why look at you that? because they all because who was the celebrity that that was when he was, was in it? his big 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 hit films years and they were all film people was so it after they, english patient or a bit later i can't remember but it's you right in yeah. there i can't remember what uh-huh. year it is it's got to be somewhere in the what probably late 90s or mid uh-huh. to late 90s and i forget when Bef- his movies okay. were it was an after talented Mr. Ripley because I wonder what the hell were they thinking they need to catch his every word? Absolutely. Absolutely. He was a top, top director. But what's the deal? So wait, it's like the setup is funny, whatever. We're like holding <laughs> along. But so the idea is that whatever there were industry people obviously yes. at the dinner and they hoped if they're like obsequious enough well there was already something, something. <laughs> anthony mcgilly was already helping i wish i could remember this i'm just blanking he was already helping in some way i think his son was cast in this movie and there was some tenuous thing and he was being very he seemed very nice he seemed very nice and generous with his time and blah blah, blah as far as you could tell from seeing him yeah. one time and so he was – oh, no, there was definitely the people who were going to be involved in one way or another with, you know, the filmmakers, you know, the, who are my friends. And, and so, yeah, he was – but he was the big 800-pound gorilla in the room. He was the rich, famous one. We were indie people. And he was actually amongst us. Man. So – it was just like it was just like people couldn't help themselves. It was just like by gravitational force. <laughs> they all just would turn like extra. back. You know, it's like an episode of Extra. Yeah, it was. It was, it was like, so not, right? embarrassing. Everyone is an extra. Oh my god! And it was, it was like a famous <laughs> celebrity. <laughs> yeah. Things you don't want to know about your fellow human beings, but you find out. Oh, man. that's Well, but that's so, I don't know. It's so, it's, if you're not too scarred by it, there's so much comedy. <laughs> oh, in there it. is a lot like, of comedy. It's hilarious. <laughs> Once it's over. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like the scene, just like even Yeah, it's visually. a good scene. It would choreograph well. Yeah, choreographing <laughs> it, it would be fun. <laughs> and the fact that he was even not necessarily relishing it no he was actually you know, you know obviously well at first he was he was allowing people to send me into it because everyone would just ask him you know very very super respectful questions and he'd be and finally he's trying to get others involved and no it was yeah. no go yeah anyway anyway, anyway oh, man. i have no final things to say but um i don't know that's i think that's it i guess the only final thing is a read Barry's on and felt. Oh yes. Call your mother. I'm so glad you liked it. I loved that damn thing. <laughs> yeah, so if if any memoir Yeah, you that, know, now that that's reading. a memoir worth worth reading. Yeah. Okay. See you on the other side. <laughs> see you on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> Hope we have fun. <laughs>
better weeks. <laughs> better weeks to come. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah.